please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 12, and follow along as I read just a few verses for us. I'm going to read the 14th verse, and then skip down to verse 17 and read through to the end of the chapter. So just a few verses from God's Word, Romans chapter 12, and I invite you to follow along and hear what the Spirit of God declares to the people of God. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How does the gospel transform us? We've seen it transforms us because it relates directly to how we view ourselves. And Paul has covered that in verses 3 through 8. We can sum it up in two words, sober judgment. The gospel transforms us. We see it in how we relate to our fellow believers. Paul addresses that in verses 9 through 16. We can sum it up in two words, genuine love. How does the gospel transform us? This transformation is seen in how we relate to our enemies. The verses I have just read publicly for us, we can sum it up in two words, active compassion, active Compassion. Here's the question. What should Christians do when they encounter or experience evil? That's the question. What should you do as a Christian? What should I do as a Christian when we encounter or experience evil? What should a Christian do when she is imprisoned for the faith? What should a Christian do when he is the victim of a violent crime? What should the Christian do when she is abused or neglected? What should the Christian do when he is vilified or ridiculed? Here it is again, the question of the moment we're going to tackle this morning. What should Christians do when they encounter or experience evil? Here's what we're going to see out of the text. We're going to see, as Paul directs us through these verses, this portion of Romans chapter 12, we're going to see that we need to keep three things clearly in view. One, two, three. That's the text. Before I give them to you, we, however, need to make a few comments about this text. Why? Because it is easy to misapply what Paul says in these verses. Let me back up a little bit. In the first instance, it's easy to misunderstand what Paul is saying in these verses. 
Therefore, it is easy, as I just stated, to misapply what Paul says in these verses. So we need to be very clear before we get to these three things that we must keep in view whenever we encounter or experience evil, we need to make some preliminary remarks concerning the text to make sure we understand it correctly and therefore apply it faithfully. To be specific, I want to make four preliminary remarks. Here we go. Are you ready? Number one. We need to look at what comes before these verses to make sure we're getting it, interpreting them accurately, applying them faithfully. We need to look at what comes before these verses. I'm thinking again in terms of the first 11 chapters. If the first 11 chapters teach us anything, they teach us this. We owe, as Christians, everything to God's mercies. That's the expression he uses in chapter 12, verse 1. We owe everything to the mercies of God. Let me state it as follows. Salvation is a river that flows one way. That's it. Salvation is a river that flows one way. I drove by the Paluxy yesterday morning. I can only imagine what the Paluxy must look like this morning. And what Heritage Park must look like right about now. Imagine if you can, jumping in at the dam there by big rocks. And trying to swim against the flow. You know how absurd that would be? Salvation is a river that flows only one way. It is all of mercy. We bring nothing to it. We provide nothing. There is nothing we do that affects God or pleases God or earns God's merit. No, salvation flows like this, this torrential, if you like, river flows toward us. It's all of mercy. We are God's elect as Christians. Building on that, we are God's possession. God is the author of salvation from start to finish, election to glorification. He purchased us. He justified us. He redeemed us. He adopted us. God holds us, his people. Again, I am speaking of Christians God holds us with a strong arm, even when we feel little joy and sense little assurance. God carries us with a mighty hand, even when we limp through life, barely able to see beyond our struggles. It is all of mercy. That is so important when it comes not only to the text we're looking at today, but chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, we have a series of commands. Paul commands us one after another, rapid fire, do this, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. We must set it always in the context of mercy. This, what Paul is giving us in this chapter, this is not a system of ethics. This is not a course in morality, in morals. No, this is God's mercy in action in the lives of those who belong to him. Hear this, please. Mercy experienced is 
mercy expressed. If mercy is not expressed in the life of the individual, we can only conclude one thing. He has never experienced God's mercy. God's mercy is by definition transformative. God's mercy compels action. God's mercy demands a response. We need to look at what comes before these verses to make sure we're interpreting them faithfully. Second preliminary remark is this. We need to look at what comes after these verses. What comes after? I'm thinking of what immediately follows as we get into the 13th chapter. I know some of you have been biding your time. You're waiting, because you've told me, you're waiting anxiously for the first few verses of chapter 13 and want to know what a Canadian is going to say about these verses. Uh, we'll get there. What I want you to, and it won't be next Sunday, by the way. We're not going to get there till January, but there you have it. You'll have to wait. What I want you to look at right now is what Paul says in the fourth verse of chapter 13. For he... Who's he referring to? He's referring to those who rule over us. So we could put for he, President Obama, for example, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now there's a context. The context is the creation narrative. And we go all the way back to the opening chapters of Genesis and we discover what? That God looked out upon humanity and he saw what? That every imagination of humanity's heart was only evil, right? God sends the flood. He saves Noah and his family. He sets up Noah as the head of a new humanity. And he enters into a covenant with Noah as the head of humanity. All humanity. He enters into a covenant. And in that covenant, God pledges himself, he promises to give life, to sustain life, to preserve life. And he seals it with this statement, Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. There the Lord God himself establishes the bedrock of any civil society, which is what? The sanctity of human life. That's where it starts. That's where it ends. The sanctity of human life. And in that covenant, and we see the witness of it whenever we behold a rainbow, a covenant that God has made with humanity. In that covenant, by giving that bedrock, that that bedrock to any society, the sanctity of human life, God is giving to humanity the responsibility to do what? To protect and preserve the sanctity of human life. And to do so by what? By establishing societies based on law and order. Which requires what? Human government. And so the role of human government, any established human government, is for the civil good. That is the establishment of law and order in which life can flourish. The sanctity of human life is preserved, celebrated, and protected. And within that system, God then has given the right to humanity to this extreme, that humanity in that system has the responsibility to require the blood of any individual who dares to shed the blood of somebody born in the image of 
God. There you have it, the bedrock of society, the sanctity of human life, the necessity for a society governed by law and order, and the responsibility that the governor, human government, plays in that. Now, what has that got to do with the text we're considering in Romans chapter 12? It's got everything to do with it. Because at times, we make the mistake of applying what Paul says in Romans chapter 12 too promiscuously. By that, I mean we apply it across the board. Please understand, in Romans 12, the verses we're looking at, God is not speaking. Paul is not speaking. The Spirit, through Paul, is not speaking judicially. He is speaking and thinking personally. Oh, we need to be clear on that. Let me demonstrate for you how this plays out. You think internationally. I don't want to spend too much time here, but here we go. You think internationally. Tomorrow, suppose Canada invades the United States of America. Some of you are grinning. I'll take issue with you later. <laughs> Canada invades the United States of America. And a bunch of hockey stick wielding crazy Canucks pour across that unprotected border. And they are wreaking havoc on the southern shore of Lake Erie all the way from Buffalo to Cleveland. What is the United States, the government of the United States of America supposed to do? They are supposed to intervene. And they must intervene militarily. They have a responsibility in a civil society, in a civil society based upon law and order, and in a civil society that cherishes the sanctity of human life, by international law, the government would have a responsibility to step in and deal with it militarily. These verses here do not apply to what goes on there. They do not transpire. Here's how those verses apply. If that were to happen tomorrow, you wouldn't show up in front of my house and throw rocks through my window. That's how these verses apply. They apply personally, not judicially. And we see that on an international level. You see it on a domestic level. Another completely hypothetical situation, although it did happen some years ago. Someone were to break in here, Grace Community Church in the middle of the night, walk off with the sound equipment, speakers, I don't know, the piano, something, and, uh, and away they go. They're caught. What happens? These verses don't apply to what happens judicially. We call the sheriff. The sheriff arrests the individual, and we prosecute to the full intent and purpose of the, of the law. And that individual lives with the consequences. That's judicial law and order. Here's what we don't do. We don't find out where that individual lives, show up at his house the next day, and throw rocks through his windows. I have something about throwing rocks through windows. It is actually quite exhilarating. I've never done it to a house. I've done it to windows that have been tossed out. But there's something about that. Do you understand this distinction then? The personal level, a judicial level. Judiciary as it applies international law and domestic law. We need to be very clear on this. Why? For example, for example, a couple weeks ago, is it that now? I heard, saw this from a Christian, a brother. ISIS, terrorist attack, Paris. Quote this verse, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. One has nothing to do with the other. That is an act of war. And France has a responsibility to respond. However, its government deems necessary in accordance with international law to do what? To uphold law and order and to protect the sanctity of human life, its own citizenry. You see how one has nothing to do with the other. And we muddy the waters at times as Christians because we're not clear on this. And we apply things to things which in actual fact have nothing to 
do with the text. This is a case in point. Keep in view what comes after and what Paul is going to say and what he's going to affirm and what he's going to insist upon in the first seven or eight verses of Romans chapter 13. Here's the third thing, preliminary remark. We need to look at the historical context behind these verses, the historical context. Paul is writing to whom? He's writing to Christians. Where do they live? In the city of Rome. When do they live? We're all the way back in the year 50, 60, if you like, uh, AD. All right, this is first century. Uh, do you know what that means? It means Paul is writing to people. He's writing to people who live in the midst of a totalitarian regime. And that is all they have ever known. And for generations following, that is all they will ever know. Paul's society knows nothing of inalienable rights. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This society, those who live in this society, find themselves in a world in which life is cheap. Justice is often brutal. And violence is common. Why do we need to remind ourselves of that here for the following reason? We tend to think we're unique. And we tend to think our circumstances are unique. My circumstances are exceptional. No one has seen the trouble I've seen. No one has been through what I've been through. No one has experienced what I have experienced. Surely, if the Apostle Paul had known or had anticipated what I was going to go through or the trouble I had seen, the evil I have encountered, he would have put a footnote in this letter and said, this applies in every situation except for so-and-so's 2,000 years from now. We have, we have that kind of mentality, that mindset. We think we're exceptional. Here's what we need to understand. There is absolutely nothing we've gone through, we're going through, or will go through in terms of evil that is foreign or alien to what these Christians went through. Please understand this. In but a few years, a relatively short time, some of the members of this local church in the city of Rome will be used as human torches to light up the Emperor Nero's garden parties. It applies to us. We know these believers went through it. Oh, they went through it. We know the Apostle Paul went through it. And so when Paul gives us these commands, there are no exceptions. There are no escape clauses. There are no footnotes. There are no appendices. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Uh, we are in this text. And these commands apply to us whenever we encounter or experience evil. Here's the fourth preliminary remark. We need to look at the governing principle over these verses. And that governing principle, again, is found, you know it, all the way back in the first verse. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, your lives, every aspect of your being, in totality. Here's how. As a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What does that mean? It means many things. Principally, it signifies this. God claims all of us. And in every circumstance of life, 
in every condition we find ourselves in, every decision we must make, every, every circumstance, pleasant or unpleasant, our number one principle, primary goal is to do what? It is to offer ourselves up as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Because you see, when we confront evil, when we are on the receiving end of evil, we will be faced with a choice. And here is the choice. Will I pursue that which is in my best interest, or rather, will I do that which will promote my comfort? Or will I do that which promotes God's glory? There's the difference. Paul has already told us back in verse 1 how it must be. That if we appreciate God's mercies and we esteem the Lord Jesus Christ appropriately and accordingly, accordingly, this is going to have a profound impact upon us at the very root of the way in which we function, especially when it comes to encountering and experience evil. The question by which we will approximate it is not what will promote my comfort, but what will promote further and extend the glory of God. We need to be clear on that. We need to be clear on that. If we aren't clear on that, these verses become meaningless. And these verses become completely alien to our experience. And so we need to be clear on those four preliminary marks. Look at what comes before these verses, the mercies of God. Look at what comes after these verses and that distinction between the judicial and the personal. Look at the historical context behind these verses. Paul is speaking to us. Whatever it is we go through, and we look at the governing principle over these verses. We are concerned with the promotion, the extension, the advancement of the glory of God. With all that said now, we're ready for the three points Paul makes in these verses. What are Christians to do when they encounter or experience evil? We need to keep three things in mind. Here's the first thing, our responsibility. We need to keep our responsibility in mind. He explains this in verses 17 and 18. Notice three distinct commands here. Command number one, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Command number two, still in verse 17. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Command number three brings us into the 18th verse. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There you have it in those three commands. Our responsibility, our duty, our calling, whenever we encounter or we experience evil. Let me break them down for you as follows. Number one, we respond selflessly. Repay no one. Evil for evil. We respond selflessly. What does that mean? It means we bear evil without satisfying malice. It means we bear evil without surrendering love. And it means, thirdly, we bear evil without sacrificing self-control. There you have it. We bear evil without satisfying malice, our spirit, our desire for vengeance. We bear evil without surrendering love. 
that ability to discern between good and evil and wanting good, even for those who do us evil. And we bear evil without sacrificing control. We respond selflessly, repay no one evil for evil. Here's the second, we behave honorably. And so, yes, it's that second command in verse 17, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And so we're not deterred from our principal calling, which is to live in a Christ-like fashion, a Christ-like manner. Peter writes, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is unbelievers, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And thirdly, we live Peaceably. Are you getting these? We respond selfishly. That's the first command in verse 17. We respond selflessly. We behave honorably. That's the second command in verse 17. And now thirdly, we live peaceably. That brings us into the 18th verse. If possible. Big qualifier. Another qualifier. So far as it depends on you. And so for the sake of emphasis, he puts these two qualifiers in there. If possible. So far as it depends on you. Live peaceably with. All, in other words, the absence of peace, Paul is saying, the absence of peace should never, ever be our fault. That's all he's saying. Our desire should be for peace. If it's possible, great. If it isn't, it isn't our fault. And therefore, that's how we respond in the face of evil. That is our responsibility. We respond selflessly. We behave honorably. And we live peaceably. Now, let me just add a huge qualification here. If you want more on what I'm about to say, you go back Psalm 129, either to the sermon a couple of years ago in that book out there, Psalm 129. Here's what I want to say, just to clear up again, something that confuses so many of us. What I have just described is not forgiveness. What I have just described is what I have just described. Three expressions. We respond selflessly, we behave honorably, and we live peaceably. Paul says nothing about forgiveness in this text. We are called, says Paul in his epistle to the Ephesians, we are called to forgive others as God has forgiven us. How has God forgiven us? Two absolutely necessary, essential ingredients. Ingredient number one, justice has been satisfied. How? Calvary's cross. Necessary ingredient number two, we have repented as Christians of our sin. Two absolutely essential ingredients to biblical forgiveness. Justice must be satisfied and repentance must be rendered. That is how God forgives us. God does not forgive anyone outside of those two things. You see, because forgiveness is a transaction. Forgiveness is really a legal, a judicial transaction. There is a satisfaction of justice in Christ upon Calvary's cross. And then there is repentance on our part, a turning from sin. We are to forgive others as God has forgiven us. And so when someone has wronged us, you can throw into this mix. When some, someone has perpetrated evil against us, yes, again, the three, we respond selflessly, we behave honorably, we live peaceably, and we offer conditional forgiveness. Meaning what? That if that person is prepared to make it right, and if that person is prepared to repent, there will be what? Forgiveness. The restoration of the relationship. Do you see why I'm going down this road? 
I'm going down this road because that word forgiveness is so often misused in our day and age. Those three things out of verses 17 and 18 are often termed forgiveness, aren't they? They're not forgiveness. They are what they are. We need to be very clear in our categories. Forgiveness, again, necessitates that justice is satisfied and repentance is rendered. And yes, we offer conditional forgiveness to those who commit evil against us. Here is what we are called to do in the meantime. Again, respond selflessly, behave honorably, and live peaceably. There's the first thing, our responsibility. Here's the second thing when we experience or encounter evil. Second thing we must keep in view is our certainty. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves. So don't go throwing rocks through the windows. Never avenge yourselves. But leave it. Oh, just leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And so what happens when justice miscarries? What happens when justice, civil justice, miscarries? A crime goes unpunished. An evil committed. There are no consequences. There is no reckoning, civilly speaking. What happens when evil is permitted within the judicial system? In a word, what happens when it looks like the perpetrators of evil are going to get away with it? There's a good question. What happens when it looks like the perpetrators of evil on a personal level toward us are going to get away with it? Let me personalize it. I've avoided personalizing it until now. But let's get right down to it. And let's think, and I'm doing this intentionally just because of the number of people, size of this room, it undoubtedly applies to many. You think even just in terms of abuse, all right? You think of an adult who reflects on child abuse when they were young. Or you think of a woman who reflects on sexual abuse. You think of someone, maybe in a context of marriage or whatever, who, who, who has experienced physical abuse. This kind of abuse, this kind of evil. It has escaped the judicial system. The perpetrator of that evil went uncaught. Okay, can you imagine it? No consequences, no reckoning there. And um, the individual confronted has never repented has never sought forgiveness, isn't interested in forgiveness, won't even acknowledge the wrongdoing. You're a Christian, that's you, how do you respond? You now know your responsibility, right? Verses 17 and 18, I'll repeat it again for the 10th time. We respond selflessly. We mortify that desire to take things into our own hands. We behave honorably. We get on with our calling to be Christ-like in this world. And we live peaceably insofar as it depends on us. In this situation, it's out of our hands now because this individual won't even acknowledge what they did was wrong. So we know what our responsibility is. Please understand secondly now what your certainty is. Your certainty is this. Reckoning is coming. It's a terrible thought, but it is a most biblical thought. Vengeance is coming. Right? Reckoning is coming. Wrath is coming. And it will be far worse than anything I would ever be able to do, even if given a million years in which to do it. Here is my certainty. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord God Almighty. 
I will repay. Here's the thing. It's paid at Calvary's cross for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we do offer that conditional forgiveness. And if the perpetrator of evil sees the light, repents of his sin, her sin, and confesses that sin, then yes, that vengeance is turned away at Calvary's cross. And there is restoration then, isn't there? There is forgiveness. But where an individual goes on in that unrepentant sin and continues to find himself, herself, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom God's wrath is satisfied, the only expectation, the only certainty is what? That that individual will reap the full reward of his or her actions. There is a day of reckoning. We're not too all, you know, sometimes we're, well, am I really supposed to think like that? Well, let me give you a great example. Paul, 2 Timothy 4.14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Wow. That's from the pen of the apostle Paul himself. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm, evil, false arrest, physical beating. What, ruin his reputation, chase after him with stones? We can only imagine. Uh, How did Paul respond? Well, undoubtedly, Paul applied what he preached. He responded selflessly, behaved honorably, lived peaceably. But there was no change in Alexander. And undoubtedly, Paul offered conditional forgiveness If Alexander would repent of his sin, but Alexander's persistence in his evil ways and Alexander's unwillingness to deal with his sin and Alexander who continued to find himself outside of Christ, uh, what does Paul comfort himself with? He comforts himself with this certainty, the Lord, the Lord will repay him according to his deed. Here's something we need to understand because we're slowly losing it in our society. Even as Christians, we're losing grip on this. There is such a thing as justice. Do you understand that, my friend? There will be justice. There will be justice. And it will be absolutely perfect justice. It will be based on full knowledge undisclosed everything that was done in secret. The judge himself cannot err in the execution of his justice because it is all laid bare before him. And the judge himself will be the executioner of his justice. And Paul, he finds comfort in this reality that those who did him such harm Those who misused him and abused him. Now, don't misunderstand. Undoubtedly, Paul prayed for their conversion. And again, undoubtedly, Paul sought their good. And again, undoubtedly, Paul shared the gospel with them. And undoubtedly, Paul would have rejoiced if the likes of an Alexander had repented. But in the light of all of that not transpiring or happening or coming to pass, where does Paul rest? In this absolute certainty God himself, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Here's the third thing we must keep in mind, our strategy. 
We've got our responsibility, verses 17 and 18, those three points. We've got our certainty then. It's right there, black and white, verse 19. It's a citation out of the book of Deuteronomy. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And now our strategy, our objective in all of this, it comes out in verses 20 and 21, and it's twofold. Here we go, verse 20, to the contrary. If your enemy is hungry, you feed him. Here's active compassion, right? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And so now we actually see in action those three commands that Paul emphasized back in verses 17 and 18. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Now there's going to be one of two possible responses here. This could go in one of two possible ways. For by so doing, the end of verse 20, you will heap burning coals on his head. I've heard it many occasions and for me, it's just such a stretch. I have heard preachers try to turn this into a positive thing. Saying that this heaping of burning coals somehow symbolizes or points to some sort of burning, cleansing effect in the individual that leads them to repentance. I, I, sorry, it escapes me, friend. I see absolutely no way in which heaping burning coals on anybody's head could be a good thing. This is judgment. This is what this is. This is Paul expanding on what he said back in Romans 2.5. That those who persist in their sin, what are they doing? They are storing up for themselves righteous wrath and indignation, which is reserved for what? The day of judgment. That's what Paul's saying here. He says, look, here's, here's your strategy. And it's twofold. You're to, you're to, this act of compassion, if he's, if he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And understand this, that if he persists in his sin, all he is doing is storing up for himself further wrath and judgment and indignation for that day yet future. But look, it could go another way. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil. But here, here's what could happen. Overcome evil with good. It could lead to the individual's further condemnation or by God's good and sovereign grace. It could lead to and result in the individual's salvation. There's the strategy. There is what we are called to do. There is what we are called to think. And there is how we are called to approach evil whenever we encounter it or whenever we experience it. You know, for those of us in this room, I, I mean, it, it is, it's entirely possible. It, it, it's, it is the reality that as I have been speaking, your mind has gone to something in the past, or your mind is right now bent on something in the present. Out of everything I've said in this text, here's what I want you to hear. I want you to hear this. Chapters 1 through 11, God's mercies. When we contemplate God's mercies, when we contemplate the cross, it crushes us to the ground. It really does. When we think of the one who died there for us, and the grace of God poured out upon Calvary's cross, it has that overwhelming effect. It crushes us to the ground. We're overwhelmed by God's mercies toward us. And we are compelled, even in the darkest circumstances, we are compelled to extend compassion to others, even the worst people, even the worst people. 
but we keep these three things in view. Our calling. What is it exactly I, am I called to do? My responsibility. We keep in view our certainty. I mean, that's faith, isn't it? Nothing escapes God's notice, and nothing will escape the day of reckoning. And we keep in view our strategy. Three additional comments I want to make as we conclude. Three things I hope and pray you didn't miss in this text. Here's the first. God is the avenger. That's clear enough, isn't it? Verse 19, again, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God is the avenger. I actually want to be a little more specific, just so that we are, for the sake of clarity. And again, I guess to rebut so, so much false thinking that is out there today. God is the avenger, true enough. Hear me, please. Christ is the avenger. Christ is the avenger. And my own study right now, I, I'm studying the book, of, the book of Jude. I won't get into why, but I'm studying the book of Jude. And the fifth verse really leapt off the page a couple of weeks ago. And here's what Jude says in his tiny little book, the fifth verse. Jesus, we're clear on the subject. Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. It just hit me between the eyes. Who did that? All, all those plagues and that judgment brought upon the land of Israel, culminating in the Babylonian and Assyrian captivities. Who is responsible for all that? Jesus. Christ himself is the avenger. I was working this out recently. I, I don't know if, my, if, if I've got the statistics right, but it's pretty close. 13%, if you go through the gospel narratives and just, just extract those spoken from the lips of Jesus in the gospel narratives, at least 13% of it has to do with hell and judgment. That's remarkable, isn't it? 13% of it has to do with hell and judgment. The warnings given by the Lord Jesus himself that a day is coming when he will cast those who refuse to believe in him, he will cast them into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, here is reality, my friend. Here is reality. You die today or tomorrow. Fair enough. Separation of body and soul. Body in the grave. Soul. If you're a Christian, a believer in the Lord Jesus, paradise. In the very presence of Christ himself. If you're an unbeliever, scripture makes it clear. It is a place of outer darkness. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. In both places, individuals are awaiting what? A coming resurrection. General resurrection when the Lord Jesus Christ will return to this earth. And consummate his kingdom. A general resurrection. Body, soul, reunited. And everyone, believers, unbelievers, will appear before his great throne of judgment. And books will be opened. And uh, you will be judged. I will be judged on the basis of our works. For those who are outside of Christ, their works will be deemed evil, unacceptable. For those who are in Christ, their works will be deemed because of Christ, by the Spirit, what? Good and acceptable. And in that resurrected state, there will then be a, an eternal separation. Christ himself between the sheep and the goats. I know it's become politically incorrect to talk about it in our day, hasn't it? Politically incorrect. That God burns with white hot anger. It's a terrible thought. He burns with white hot Anger. You know how I know that? Calvary's cross is how I know that. 
There is the greatest demonstration of the wrath of God poured out upon his own son. And here's the mystery of mysteries. At the same time, the greatest demonstration of the love of God. You know, the father was never more pleased with his son than he was as he hung upon Calvary's cross. And that acceptable sacrifice that was offered on behalf of all those who repent of their sin, turn from their idolatry, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That brings me to the second point I hope we haven't missed. is this. Christ is the Savior. He is the only Savior. And as he hung upon Calvary's cross, he became sin for us. God reckoning my sin... My failures, my acts of disobedience, my rebellion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ became a curse for us, whereby he bore in his body the due penalty, the just reward for my sin. He is the Savior. He is the only Savior. And here's the third thing I hope you haven't missed in this text. The chapter in its entirety as we've made our way through it, we respond to this great news. We respond to this gospel with a heart of gratitude. I think that's one of Paul's chief points in this 12th chapter of this epistle. That when we are laid to the ground, knocked to the ground, in the light of God's mercies as revealed upon Calvary's cross, it stirs in us such a spirit of thankfulness as Christians. Such a heart of gratitude, then it then flows out into what? The transformed life that he has been describing from verse 1 to verse 21. J.I. Packer states it as follows. Oh, from the plan of salvation I learn that the true driving force in authentic Christian living is and ever must be not the hope of gain, but the heart of Gratitude. Are you thankful? Let me, back, let me back up a bit. First of all, are you saved? Do you know the Lord Jesus? Do you understand who you are before a God who declares vengeance is mine? Do you understand the trouble you're in? And you understand the only remedy, the only hope, the only recourse is found in the God-man, Jesus Christ who has loved us and given himself up for us upon Calvary's cross, have you responded in faith and repentance? And in responding in faith and repentance, do we now present our lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God? We're going to sing these words in a few moments. Here they are, just to get us ready. O oh, great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart, own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain. That resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore. Our Father in heaven above. This is indeed our prayer. Make us yours forevermore. We are so thankful for this reality in the Lord Jesus. So thankful that you've made us one with him by the Holy Spirit. Those of us who truly know you and know that great salvation which you've provided in Christ. 
We pray that your word, as it's been proclaimed this day, has been made alive by the Spirit. We pray for illumination for those who still sit in darkness. We pray for the turning of the heart and the breaking of the will, those who still find themselves in the clutches of willful stubbornness. And we pray, our Father, that you would be gracious indeed to us, gracious to those unbelievers present, that this might be the day of salvation, gracious to your people present, that we might be encouraged and edified by all that we have read and heard and considered this day. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.